If you would, I would encourage you to open your Bibles if we turn to the New Testament, to the letter of Ephesians. The letter of Ephesians, we're dealing with the last chapter. And as we do that, I, I just want to remind you as we've gone through the series on the Ephesian letter that Paul is writing to people who are basically have no reason to be with each other. They were Jews and Gentiles who had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were not necessarily people who spent time with each other before that. A Gentile would never be associated with a Jew because the Jews considered them probably more inhuman than anything else. They considered Gentiles dogs. And so Jews would not eat with them. They would not allow their children to marry them. They did everything they could to expose the Gentiles as a godless people. And so, and so as you think about this whole business of God uh, working in people's lives, one of the things that was amazing was that God brought these two divided people, the Jews and the Gentiles, and created a new creation called the church. And there were two prayers that Paul gave. The first is in the first chapter one where he says that, it was his prayer that they would come to know the love of God in Jesus Christ. And that love would so unite them as a people that the rest of the town of Ephesians would see their love for each other. And they would ask the honest question, how is it that you are Jews and Gentiles and you actually love each other? In chapter 3, you find the prayer again. He says, for this reason, chapter 3, verse 14, I kneel before the Father of whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is deriving his name, and I pray that out of God's glorious riches that God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now notice this. This is a key passage before we get to what we're looking at this morning. Notice how he says in verse, chapter 3, verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. For this reason, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now notice the subjective there, that Christ may dwell, as if there's a possibility that the dwelling of Christ might not be a reality for these Christians. In other words, that there would be things that would happen in their lives that would either deny or rob them of the pleasure of the indwelling of Christ. We come to chapter 6 this morning, and we are looking at specifically verse 10. And as we look at this verse, one of the things that really is quite amazing is Paul sums up his scriptures. If you, uh, if you go to chapter 6 and you look in verse 10, you find that Paul uses a word that we have translated from the Greek into the English finally. Another word in another translation in the English would be henceforth. Another way of saying it is from this moment on. So in other words, as we read this passage, he is laying out for the Ephesians that now that they have come to know the love of God from this moment on until Christ returns, here's what you have to be prepared for. Hear now the word of God. So we look in this passage, verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now we just read that, didn't we? The prayer. Verse 11 
put, all, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes or craftiness. For you, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with the feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, Take up the shield of faith which is, uh, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. This is the word of God. Pray with me and for me, wouldn't you? Let's pray together. Father, as we talk about the spiritual things of life and we talk about the unseen, it's very hard for we in America to see anything more than what we see with our eyes. And yet faith in Christ and understanding the workings of our Father in heaven goes beyond what is just seen visibly. For you are the God of both the seen and unseen, the visible and invisible. And for that reason, enlarge our faith and help us to understand what is happening in our lives. Now that we believe in your Son, we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. And the people of God said together, Amen. <clears throat> I was listening to a very modern preacher on TV uh, a while back who was telling me that if I just believed in Jesus, then all my financial problems would be over. That if I turned and believed in Christ, then I would be healed of all diseases. That if I just gave myself to Christ and sent a donation that I would receive a, a shroud that I could be uh, putting on a sore place or hold in my hand so that I would know that that shroud or piece of cloth had been prayed for. And by obtaining it, I would receive God's blessing. All of that teaching as I listened to it really kind of astounded me because it had nothing to do with Jesus. You see, one of the things Paul has taught us in the first three chapters of Ephesians is that God has given you everything in Jesus Christ. It's yours. You need forgiveness of your sins. You have obtained it by your faith in him. You've been cleansed of your past. You've been called into his family. You've been adopted as his children. You have been secured as his church. And that every need that we have today, every need, God is going to provide according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? That God's going to pay my electric bill? No, it, it simply means that God is very much involved with our lives and there's nothing that happens that's going to separate us from Christ's love. There is no sin to which you can commit that God will suddenly say, you know, I'm really sorry I ever forgave you. There's nothing you could do that would change how much God loves you today. But that doesn't mean, that does not mean 
that somehow God is some card blank that gives you everything you want. You see, the purpose of your forgiveness, the purpose of your calling is to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ, to begin imitating Christ in how you live. That's what we've been spending time the past three Sundays. Last two sermons have just been so impactful in implying God's word about now that we're in Christ, we are no longer in Adam, the old, the old man. In other words, being descended from Adam, we once were separated from God because of our sins. We could not know him or love him or follow him, but now that we're in Christ, we are united in Christ with God so that we are now part of his family. And even then, Paul tells us in chapter 5, we're to imitate God. We're to imitate him. And so as we look at this passage and we begin to deal with then the final thing that Paul wants to address, he's dealing with the topic of really what is called a spiritual battle. And we think, well, no, we don't, we don't understand that because many of us have never been in a battle. We've never been in a war. And so as Paul begins to talk with us about this whole business of a spiritual battle, he's actually talking about something we can't see with our eyes, but we experience with our lives each day. Because now we love Christ, we want to follow him, but there are things that trip us up. There's discouragement that comes in our lives. There are others that we can't control, and their behavior affects us in such ways that, that, that indirectly we begin to doubt or fear that maybe God is not at work. And so as you and I begin to think about being this, this Christian that follows Christ in our world, it becomes very apparent that if you're going to follow Jesus, that you're going to find resistance, not just from the world, but not just from your friends and not just from your family. You're going to find a resistance in your own heart because you are still working out what it means to follow Christ. You're not sure, you're, you're not clear how to overcome your sins, what temptations you still face. It's been my, it's really been my experience in counseling and talking with people that many of the besetting sins that you and I deal with were formulated in their foundation when we were teenagers. Do you all hear this? That a lot of the things that you wrestle with in being obedient to Christ, those things began in your life in your teens. And as a teenager coming from that uh, prepubescent time into being an adult, you experience things that kind of set the mood or set the direction of your life in certain things so that you began to adopt them and they kept them secret or you nursed them or you... you fed them in such ways that they even now begin to creep back into your life and begin to haunt you. And Paul is writing to people who've experienced that kind of thing, and he says, listen, what God has done for you is forgiven you of all those things, but those tentacles that still are part of your memory still cling to you. And they simply want to draw you back into the old way of living. Sam Weir, who is an aeronautical engineer, hates when I use this illustration. By the way, pray for Sam. Uh, would you continue remembering in your prayers? He talks about, uh, I tell him that uh, I love the illustration of the airplane that fixes its wings. When you go down to Charlotte Douglas International Airport and watch these jets taking off, you don't see the planes doing this like a bird, do you? If you do, you don't want to be on that plane, <laughs> right? 
But, but, but one of the things the, pla the plane does is it fixes its wings in such a way that it allows the aerodynamics of the air passing under and over the wings to actually lift the plane into the air. And so the speed and the wind direction all have a very great effect upon the plane. Can I ask you a simple question? Do you ever see the air? Dick says yes as a pilot. I see it all the time. Well, interestingly enough, the rest of us on the plane don't. All we see is fixed wings and air. We don't even see the air. I was surprised to learn, as I've been dealing with my eyes, that one of the things the doctor has told me is that we have a capacity for only seeing a certain range of light with our eyes. Did you know this? that there are certain ranges of light we cannot see. And so once our eyes reach their maximum capacity of taking in certain re reflections of light, we have become blind to the things that are basically still around us but we cannot see. Here's another example. If you use your, your cell phone, have you all noticed on your cell phone there's a place where you can attach and you can connect to a Wi-Fi place? You know what that is? Or, or there's another thing that says a Bluetooth. I, I found out that basically that's an unseen wave you can't see. I can't touch it. I can't see it. But the phone does. And it picks it up every time. Maybe not every time. But, <laughs> but what, what is my point? My, my point is that it's not unusual in our days as we think about it to think about things that we cannot see. Is it any surprise then that Paul is directing the Ephesians to think about the things that are affecting their lives that they can't see? They're unseen. And there is the spiritual battle. You see, they haven't seen Jesus, but they believe in him. Let me get into this more clearly, and I hope that you will be able to follow Please notice that he says, finally, from now on, be strengthened in the Lord and in his mighty power. Well, why does he say that? Why doesn't he say, tighten up your bootstraps and just get in line and follow Jesus? No, there's something that Paul really wanted the Ephesians to grasp, and that is that the strength of living the Christian life does not come from you. It comes from Christ. And it comes from Christ living in you and dwelling in you. And we saw back in chapter 3 that there's a chance you may not have that power at work in your life. That there is a, a real chance that you could be trying to live the Christian life in your own strength and power. And so you're walking through life trying to resist evil or overcome temptations in your own strength and in your own power in such measure that you believe that really you're the savior of yourself. And it's a denial of the gospel because we have no power over sin. If we did, we could free ourselves from sin long ago and wouldn't have needed Christ. But because Christ died on the cross for our sins, he not only died for the penalty of our sins, he, di he died so that he could overcome its power in our lives. And, it, and in that power being overcome, we now understand, according to Paul's teaching, that the power of si over sin is not within us because of who we are. It is in us because of who Christ is. 
And because he lives in your heart and you walk with him day by day, there will be times when the temptations come and the question is, how are you going to deal with it? Are you going to try to discipline your own life and overcome the sin or are you going to avail yourselves of the power of Christ? Oh. You see, that's where Paul is getting to this passage. Be strong in the Lord and in the Lord's mighty power. Well, that's a whole new concept for us, isn't it? You see, as Americans, first, we're taught that we can, we can take care of our own problems. And secondly, it's a new concept because we were dead to God. We didn't know about this power before we came to know Christ. But now that we're in Christ, a new power has come into our lives it's amazing to me that of all things, the people who attend Alcoholics Anonymous have identified this more quickly than the church. Because those who have gone through addiction understand that they have no power over the addiction. They need a higher power beyond themselves to help overcome their temptations to that particular activity. And that is exactly who we are as Christians. We have no ability to resist sin apart from the grace and mercy and power of Jesus Christ. Well, with that said then, the question then becomes, he says, you are to be finally strong in the Lord and in his mighty power because you need to remember that to be able to stand, there is going to be a time when you will find it harder to stand than other times. In other words, there's going to be moments where you're going to be standing and it's not going to be a real problem because you're in Christ and Christ is dwelling you. But there are going to be other times when things will happen and they will happen to you in such manner you will not be able to understand it. You'll not make sense of it. You'll be crying out to God, where are you? And in that moment of evil, the day of evil, you're going to be tested as to whether you will look to Christ or look to yourself. The most amazing thing is if you look at verse 11, he says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your scand against the devil's schemes. You see, he is assigning at that moment where these challenges come from. They do not come from God. God does not tempt us. The devil does. What is he tempting us? To doubt God's love, his mercy, and his grace. To doubt the power of Christ in you. That is his scheme. Before the invasion in, in, uh, in France, one of the things that the Allied forces did during World War II was they were trying to think of ways to discourage the Germans. And one of the things they came up with was they were trying to think of how to distract the Germans from seeing what they were getting ready to do. And so in England, as the Allies were preparing for the invasion, they would have, they would have camps set up that were what they called fake or dummy camps. And they would literally blow up balloons, so to speak, that looked like tanks. They had these balloons manufactured to look like tanks. And they would blow them up and set them up all over the fields where they could be seen by any plane or any spy that would come around. And so as the Germans would gather this information, they would gather how many tanks were being formed, where they were being formed, and they were trying to figure out where the invasion was going to come in France. And so all of that was done as a way of the Allies fooling the Germans, deceiving the Germans so that the beachheads could be formed and we could invade that part of France that was being occupied by German during that war. 
Well, believe it or not, that's about the only power the devil has in your life. He cannot possess you. He cannot, he cannot in the words of Flip Wilson, who none of you know, uh, who said, the devil made me do it, right? He can't do that. Because Christ dwells in your heart now, you belong to God, and so the greatest power the devil has is the devil of scheming or craftiness to deceive you, to make you believe a lie. And what we're seeing in the world is people buying into what is called the great lie, and it is that there is no God, and because there is no God, I can live any way I want. Well, all of this is really leading to that whole point of being strengthened in the Lord so that we might be able to resist that craftiness of the devil. How are we to do that? He says, first, we are to be aware of God's protection that he gives you. Are you aware? Now, Logan and I are going to be leading you over the next Sundays about talking about the armor of God. We're not going to be dealing with that this morning. But when you hear Paul give the litany of the armory that God is giving us, do you know what the shield of faith is? Do you know what the helmet of salvation is? Do you know how to apply those things so that you're able to resist the devil? You see, the, the real battlefield of the Christian life is not in the heart, it's in the mind. What we dwell upon, what we allow ourselves to think about, that becomes the beachhead through which everything else is affected. And so Paul writes and he says to these Ephesians, he says, look, you are to put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Well, it's not? No, it's not against flesh and blood. It's something different. And so this kind of protection that God gives is something that we're not accustomed to as a new believer because it's a new kind of armament we've never had before. It's a new way of resisting the devil that we've never adopted or lived out. And so in light of that, he says, therefore, be aware of the enemy you're facing. Be aware of the enemy you're facing. Well, who is this enemy? Well, we don't know a lot about the devil. We don't need to. We do know that he is a deceiver, that he wanted to become God. And in wanting to become God, he wanted to see himself elevated and magnified and worshipped by the creation, even though he was created by God himself. I, I had a friend in, in, uh, in seminary when I was doing an internship in Dallas, Texas, a very intelligent man. He was a Christian by all, all accounts. But when we talked about the problem of evil, he said, well, you know, I don't really believe there's a devil. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, I don't believe there's, there's a personification of evil called the devil. I just believe that evil is evil. And I said, that's, that's kind of an interesting theory. Where do you get that kind of thought from? He said, I know the Bible says and Jesus talks about the devil, but I'm not sure if I've ever seen him. And he said, you know, I have. I've seen the devil. And he looked at me like, what? I said, yeah, I've seen him. Where have you seen him? I've seen them in the lives of people who have left their marriages for others after they gave a promise to live with that person till death do them part, thinking that they had fallen in love with someone else and loved them more than the person they first married. I've seen the devil. I've seen the devil. I've seen the devil in lives of men who have search for intimacy in the wrong places and they leave those places whether they're bars or 
God forbid that we have one right here in Mooresville, just one exit north of us, a strip joint. I've seen the devil in the lives of those men who leave those places more empty than when they went in. Oh, I've seen the devil. I've seen the devil in lives of people in this church who made the profession that I love Jesus Christ, but then years later they have walked away from their faith and they no longer worship. Yeah, I've seen the devil and I've seen his craftiness and his power. And I know that without the mercy of God in your life or in my life, that craftiness will destroy me as, t as well. Well, what, what power does he have? Well, please notice that if you read further in that verse of verse 12, he says our, our, our struggle is against rulers. It's against authorities. It's against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What is he talking about? Well, please notice that our enemy is first powerful. He's powerful. This enemy who is evil is swaying not just one or two people, but an entire world that Jesus talks about in the Gospels, that the, your, your father, the devil, he talks to the Pharisees in that way. Your father, the devil, who is leading you in the lies of not re recognizing who I am. Your father, the devil, the prince of the power of the, of the, of the age at work in, in the sons of disobedience. The Bible gives reference to this all the time. And so there's not some, some localized place like Washington, D.C., where evil resides and it sends out its tentacles. It is already at work do, do, uh, having a dominion across the entire globe. It is what we used to be under. It used to be under that dominion. We were literally captivated by our sin and under, this, under the dominion of evil in our lives because evil is defined as the opposite of good, which is God. And Paul says, listen, please be aware that this, this craftiness of the devil is very powerful. It is very deceptive. I've actually talked to someone who said that they left their first wife because they were going to lead someone else to Jesus. I, I've heard that. Or that they left their spouse because they found someone who was more spiritual than their spouse. You hear this? This deception that can cloak and darken the mind of even those who profess faith in Christ? But secondly, he says it's wicked. Now, I know some of you teenagers like that word, wicked. You know, I remember the first time I saw that as an oxymoron. You know, we were at a youth group meeting and someone said, oh, that's wicked, meaning it was good. And I said, where in the world did you learn how to call something good wicked? And they said, I don't know. I just thought it was cool. And I thought, yeah, it's, it's cool until you understand what you've just done. You've called wicked good and good wicked. You've reversed everything. Well, where does this kind of thinking come from? It comes from the deceiver. Because that's exactly how sin appears to those who enjoy it. It looks wonderful. It looks good. It looks inviting. It is life-giving, but it's not. 
It only brings death. He says that not only is it powerful and it's wicked, he says it has cunning, meaning it's not something that you anticipate. Now, I'm a hunter. I grew up hunting all my life. And one of the things that we never did was we never trapped anything. We always just shot it, you know. You have a deer come through the woods, you pull up a gun, you shoot it and take it home. But the word here of craftiness is like laying a trap. It's like laying something out that no one can see, and the unsuspecting person just kind of goes through the woods, kind of jottering, until finally these things reach out of the ground and trap them um, and, and literally encase some part of their, their body until the, the one who is going to take them out comes and releases them from the trap and leaves them of their life. Well, that's the word that Paul uses here about the schemes of the devil. He is laying traps for you every day. Unseen traps. Just waiting for you to come along and fall in it. And I look at that and go, wow. Well, how in the world can I stand against this? I mean, this enemy I have is powerful. He's wicked. He does not want to spare my life. He wants to rob me of the things of God. And lastly... He literally is setting traps to trip me up in following the faith I have now uh, professed. And you go, oh my, we really are in a battle, aren't we? I, I think about what's happened to our nation. In the last year, have you asked yourself, what in God's name is going on with our world? Have you said that? Have you ever thought that it could be that there is a huge spiritual battle going on? concerning whether the knowledge of God continues in the world or it doesn't. The gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed faithfully or it's not. It's a huge battle going on. Paul then goes on and says we must also be aware of the challenges yet to come. And here's where we begin to launch into this whole idea of the spiritual battle. Please notice he says in verse 13, Therefore, Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Now, why does he use those terms? Well, in the battlefield, the first thing that had to make certain happened was that the soldier continued to stand on his feet because as they faced the enemy, if they fell onto the ground, they were vulnerable to attack. And being vulnerable on the ground, they, they would probably end up being speared or taken out of the battle itself. And so when we think of standing, it's not that we stand against the enemy. It's a twofold understanding. It's that when we have done everything to stand, in other words, we do our part in standing for Christ and leaning upon him, but ultimately we don't stand in our strength. We stand in the strength of Christ. Both meanings are here. And so when Paul talks about this standing, he says, first of all, please understand that this enemy we have that is powerful and wicked and cunning, he is unseen and he is dominating so many things in the world that we just take for granted. But now that we're in Christ, we're called away from that kind of life into a new life. And because of this new life in Jesus Christ, you can expect the days are coming when you're going to have opportunities to face evil. Truly. And it will be like a trap set for you. 
And because it's a trap set for you, Paul says, you then must do everything you can to prepare. And then when you have prepared, you must lean upon Christ to stand. The most amazing thing is that James tells us in chapter 1 that temptations and trials come. Same, same words, they come. But the testing that comes is to allow us to see where we put our faith. Do we put it in Jesus Christ or do we put it in ourselves? Have One, that you're going through a spiritual battle right now and you don't even know it. You're not even aware of it. The craftiness is so powerful right now, you're being blinded from seeing what is happening in the ways that it's challenging or trying to uh, minimize your trust and your faith in Christ. The second thing that I'm worried about is as we come into this moment and we begin to deal with spiritual battles, that in this church, as we teach and preach this, we're going to see tremendous opportunities of evil coming into our lives. You say, well, Robert, what, are you wishing this? No, I'm just telling you. The devil does not want us to be aware of the th real battle that is at work in your hearts that wants more than anything else to discourage you, to drive you from Christ, to bring you to apathy instead of having a zealous love for Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's what Paul is praying for. He's praying that the Ephesians would have a jealous, zealous love for Jesus Christ so that when the testing comes, when their friends come to them and say, I, I haven't seen you at the temple lately. Why aren't you joining us for the feast? Don't you want to come back and have some great times with us? That they'll be able to say, you know, I, I'm just not that way anymore. It's not that at all. It's that I found who God really is and I know why he's made me. And I'm not to be worshiping idols anymore. I remember when that, <laughs> remember when that happened to me, my first real test of my faith. I, I'll never forget it. I, I, I had grown up in an atmosphere where I, I had attended church most of my life. My mother had, had kind of fallen into a cult called Christian Science. Have you ever heard of it? Christian Science. It's a cult. And she was looking to that form of religion to bring sanity to her life and it was the most insane belief system you've ever seen I won't go into that this morning I'll tell you about it later but as I was growing up in that crucible I began to ask what is really true and who is God and where is he and does he care and so after I came to that point of hearing the gospel and believing in Christ, when I came home, the first test of my faith happened. I had a friend, a close friend, who we used to go out and we used to borrow liquor from our parents' liquor cabinet. And we would go out and take that liquor and we would get as dumb drunk as we possibly could. I, I know, I know. You, you, if you'd known this about me, you wouldn't have hired me to be your pastor. I understand. But if I had known things about you, I wouldn't want to be your pastor either. But we would do that in the sense that we would go out and we would just do this as a way of rebelling. And all during that time, I felt so empty. I felt like this, there's got to be more to life than this. And so after I came to know Christ, 
I came back and was at school, and he came up to me. This is my best friend, and he says, hey, I found some things to borrow for Friday night. Do you want to go? And I was caught in this quandary. He's my best friend. But I've now come to love Christ. And so I said, you know, I really used to enjoy that with you, but I'd like to find other ways of having a friendship. I was scared to death. You know what he said to me? Oh. And we never, ever shared anything again. You want to talk about pain? You really want to talk about pain? This is why Jesus said that when I come, I come to bring a sword that will divide you. Son from father, mother from daughter. Because to follow Christ is to put not the world on, it is put Christ, the indwelling Christ on in such a way that we are living a new life that is separated from a world that is under the dominion of evil. And there are going to be times when you and I will have to take a step back and say, am I loving Jesus? Or am I doing this just to please my husband? Or my kids? Or my neighbors? Or the government? Do I really love Jesus? Do you remember Pastor Brunson we had been praying for who had been taken prisoner in Turkey. Do you remember him? I was talking with a pastor friend yesterday as we were having a meeting in our presbytery and then Gary was telling me he said that he wanted to be around the Brunson so badly that while the General Assembly was going on he had literally volunteered to drive them anywhere they wanted to go. And Pastor Brunson was talking about his experiences in Turkey and what had happened to him. And he comes back to America and he says, we are unprepared as a Christian for what we are facing. And I said, well, Gary, what do you think he meant by that? He said, what I gather from him is he sees what is happening in our culture. And he sees how Christianity is being targeted. And he believes that we are going to face a persecution where we are going to be chastised and made fun of and ridiculed because we will not tolerate and we will not cooperate with the culture as it's leading us to deny the scriptures and the God that we serve. And I said, and you wanted to ride around hearing that? And he said, I want to be prepared. And I thought long and hard about that. You see, that's really what Paul's concern was for the Ephesians. Because they had come to know Christ and love Christ in such measure that they had been delivered from all the lies about their religions that used to practice. And they had now come into the real relationship that God had meant for them through Jesus Christ. And every day of their life, 
they were going to be tempted to go back to the old way of life. When you walk into the ruins of the city of Ephesus today, if you go down the main street, you will see in the center a beautiful building that once housed every article of knowledge the Greeks and the Romans had. It was a library. Every form of knowledge was in that building. So that if you were tempted by knowledge to think that somehow knowing something was a way to improve your life, then the library was available. There, right next to it was the doors that went to the local prostitution and there you could satiate every desire you ever had. You could just simply walk in and pay for it. Right next to this building. And right next to that was the marketplace where all of the merchants would come and buy and sell and make huge amounts of money based upon that library and that house of ill repute and the merchandise that was being traded throughout the Mediterranean so that that city offered anyone anything they could possibly want to satisfy their flesh and blood. And here now were these Christians who had come to know the one true God by faith in Jesus Christ who they had never seen or touched but believed in because they had heard the gospel. And Paul says, the days are coming when you're going to be tempted. And when you've done everything to stand, then stand in his strength. I don't know about you this morning. I don't know where you are in your walk with Christ. I, I don't know if you're dealing with a compromise where you're being led to think, well, God will overlook something or God will... God will smooth it over or God will forgive it. I want you to know God, God doesn't deal with us this way. He wants you to love him more than anything else. And you'll never be able to unless you cry out to him and say, God, increase my love for you so that I am willing and ready to live for you from now on. And how we do that, Paul says, put on the full armor of God. There is something we can do. Put on the full armor of God. What is this armor? You have to come back next week. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Father, as we think about the days that we live in and the calling that you have given us in Jesus Christ, it is no wonder that we are feeling such overwhelming uh, swings of emotions in our day because we see in America all these things that are before us and they, they, they do tempt us. They do lead us in thinking in ways that are not in accordance with Jesus Christ. And so as we close this morning and we begin to study this, this passage, my prayer is that none of us would allow this time of opportunity to pass us, that we would take in deeply the lessons that you give us in your word from chapter 6, verse 10, all the way through the rest of this, this book. Because if everything Paul has taught us from chapters 1 through 5 is true, then it even amplifies the battle we now face. And each one of us are tempted in 
all kinds of ways different from one to another. And therefore, I am so grateful that you have given us this church, these people around us, who will not judge us or condemn us for what we might face as a temptation, but are here to lovingly encourage us to look to Jesus. For by looking to Christ and to Christ alone, you tell us that you will supply for us everything we need. And so we do not have to fear. We do have to be aware. And so because of that, Father, I want to confess to you as a pastor, I have never been more discouraged in my life than I am right now. When I hear of what has happened to the witness of Jesus Christ in the world in America, and I pray, oh God, raise up your church. Raise me up that I might stand. We ask and we pray this humbly in the name of Christ our Lord. And the people of God said together,